Hey everyone, it's Paul here. I want to welcome you back to the Problem of Evil series we've been doing for quite some time now. Our last episode, we, we took a slight detour, although not really, to interview Jen Meyerson, a Christian humanitarian who's worked for Preemptive Love in the United Nations. And uh, I hope you enjoyed that episode. More relevant, though, directly to today's episode is going to be the one prior to this. So that would be episode 48, where we explored Molinism. So if you hadn't listened to that one yet, I'd recommend going back and listening to that one so you can understand where we've come from, especially at the beginning of today's episode, where we're going to talk about maybe some of the weaknesses of Molinism or some of the critiques people have had against the Molinist position. So if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to that, go back, listen to that. I actually hope you've had the opportunity to go through the entirety of the series. Maybe you've just jumped into this podcast and you've never listened before, uh, I might recommend just going back to the start of this series, right? Go back to episode, or problem, I should say, part one in our Problem of Evil series, so that you can see how all of these ideas connect together. You can see the connective tissues, and and you you can see some of the strengths and the weaknesses of each attempt to try to make sense of evil and suffering and somehow reconcile it with Christian notions of God, who he is, and how he acts in the world. As we saw in part eight of our Problem of Evil series, Molinism offered a creative attempt to somehow reconcile the the classical metaphysics and ideas about God with the historic affirmations of human responsibility for moral evils. If you remember, the Catholic Church was really wrestling with this, especially in the, in the face of the critiques of Luther and Calvin and their, their interpretations of Scripture and Augustine, which led to much more predestinarian views of God's providence. Luis de Molina attempted to reconcile those differences. How is it that God can be whom we have talked about, what, what, what God is like, these classical notions of God as omniscient, impassable, right? That God has foreknown and he exists outside of time. These, these classical ideas that we would consider part of classical theism, how can those be reconciled? with affirmations of some level of libertarian human free will. Because we need to affirm that in order for humans to be morally responsible for the moral evils of the world. Now, Molinism never quite gained the prominence in the Christian tradition that the Augustinian, the Thomistic, or even the Lutheran and Calvinist schools of thought did. It was even controversial enough to be accused by some Catholics, like those in the Dominican order, as being heretical teaching. After decades of debate, Pope Paul V in 1607 declared there should be no more accusations of heresy against the Molinists. It's time to move on, guys. (laughs) We can't keep this debate going forever, is essentially what he said. He didn't rule in favor of the more Thomistic school of thought over the Molinist school of thought. He that wasn't the case. Essentially, what he said was, guys, it's time to move on. Molinists are not a heretical group. And so this declaration from Pope Paul V, again, and this happened in 1607, essentially made it so that Molinism 
will not be considered heretical, that it's actually an acceptable view in the Catholic Church. Um, but simultaneously, Pope Paul V didn't rule in favor of Molinism being superior to the traditional classical position. Now, maybe after listening to pro, uh, episode eight in our Problem of Evil series, and you've come to perhaps a better understanding of what Molina's position was all about in this kind of new creative way of thinking, at least it was at the time, called Molinism. Maybe after listening to that, you were tempted to declare yourself a Molinist. I know after going through and doing the research for that episode, I, I you know, I felt, a, oh, you know, this, this has some compelling arguments to it. This has some appeal to it. Maybe this is the best way of understanding the Christian story, and in particular, the, the metaphysics of God and time and being and free will. Well, if you were tempted in that direction, at least let me help balance out the perspective, right? I was presenting that argument just so that we would be able to fully understand the Molinist position fairly. But I think it's important, too, that we actually hear the critiques and some of the objections and questions people had from Molina's school of thought to see why it actually, it never took as a predominant interpretation of scripture, or predominant understanding. It never, never moved its way into displacing the classical theistic interpretation. So let's talk about some of the ways that people, the objections and questions people had from Molina's school of thought, especially as it relates to the problem of evil. For both classical theists and the Catholic Church and those who followed the Reformed perspectives of Luther and Calvin, there's been concern that Molinism maybe gives too much power to the wills of moral agents. Libertarian free will, they would argue, limits God's providence and sovereignty to act only with the cards he's been dealt. Remember, that was, we talked about William Lane Craig, the, um, the contemporary Christian philosopher and theologian who's a proclaimed Molinist, and, and talked about his analogy of God sort of purviewing all of the possible worlds using his middle knowledge seeing how humans would act, not just humans, but we could say any moral agent would act in any particular situation, seeing how their libertarian free will would behave in that situation. And as he surveys, and again, this is a logically prior, and this is where it gets confusing, right? This is a logically prior event, not necessarily a temporarily prior event. And I know that's confusing. And maybe this is why for many reasons Molinism has not has not really caught on, that this is not something that's happened sequentially, that God is not taking time to make calculations. You know, the Molinists would say, again, remind your God exists outside of time, but we do need to say that somehow logically prior to his actualization of this world, this one real world that God has surveyed, remember like perhaps the helpful comparison to some regard uh, in some way was like Doctor Strange and um, Marvel's Infinity War, seeing all the possible scenarios and the possible worlds in which they could defeat Thanos. In a sense, that might be a helpful comparison. So God surveys all of the ways 
humans can use that libertarian free will. And then God selects out of all of those, using his middle knowledge, all of those possible worlds, he selects one actual world to actualize. To He, he makes this world the actual world. So the Molinist effort there, again, is to try to to keep a sense in which we say, no, 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 we did, in, in maybe in theory, we, we possess libertarian free will. We, we do possess free will, but God just, he knows how we are going to respond to the causes around us, to the situations and experiences around us. The, the, the counter-response from the cla- both the classical theists and those in the more reformed perspective of Luther and Calvin was to say, okay, are we saying, though, still that, that this libertarian free will, that it limits God's ability to bring about the world that he would really want to bring about? It's like, well, God really would have loved to bring about a world where the Holocaust never happened, but those weren't the cards that God was dealt. And so this is the this is a good question from classical theists, from those in the Lutheran and Calvinist perspectives, which I would still say fall under the umbrella of, cap, uh, of classical theism. If God is getting cards dealt to him that he's stuck playing with, well, then who is God? As theologian Philip Carey puts it, quote, the cards limit God's options, for they imply that not every possible world is one God could feasibly actualize. If we go back to Epicurus' theodicy challenge, of course, Epicurus didn't call it theodicy. That's a term borrowed from Gottfried Leibniz, who we're going to actually explore later in this episode. If we go back to his theodicy challenge, which was what? What was that again? Right? It was God can't be both all-powerful and all-good, because if he is all-powerful and all-good, there would be no evil in the world, but there is evil in the world. So either that's happening as a, as a rejection somehow of God's all-powerful will, so either God isn't powerful enough to stop it, or God isn't loving enough to be able to do something about it. Maybe he's powerful enough, but he doesn't love enough to stop something as horrific as the Holocaust, right? If we go back to Epicurus's challenge and we ask, does Molinism solve that challenge? The classical theists are contending, would contend that if one accepts Molinism, one is simply accepting that God is not all-powerful. They would say God is in a sense, answering to the cards he's been dealt. And, well, what are the factors that, sh- you know, would shuffle the the deck of human history and all of creation and God's um, ability to bring about a particular world? Well, it seems like it is dependent on libertarian free will, on the will of human beings. That's 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 sort of the deck, and as that deck gets shuffled and God gets a hand of cards based on the way humans would potentially act in any particular situation, the critique is, well, maybe then, maybe then what, we're, what, what you're saying, Molina, what you're saying, Molinist, is that God is answering to something higher than himself. And 
Uh, you know, that might make for an easier explanation of why there's evil and suffering in the short term, and maybe in the short term it provides us with a sense of saying, yes, humans are morally responsible for their actions. Maybe it doesn't. We'll talk about that in a moment. But, but then you're left with, the classical theists are going to say, then you're left with a, a God as a functional demigod who is still answering in the hierarchy of cosmic command to a higher power. And we should name that higher power as God. So it's important. We, we should listen and sit with that critique, even if you are a Molinist, even if you felt convinced by Molina's position that you have to go, well, yeah, no, this seems like a better, better answer than the classical position has given us. I think that critique is worth considering. There's another challenge for Molinists put forward by classical theists. And even others like open theists, who we will explore in future episodes, they both have challenges in another area for the Molinist. And these challenges on the emotional level, on the existential level, may be even more problematic than the first challenge. Presumably, in Molinism, God, using his middle knowledge, surveyed all possible worlds and actualized this one world with holocausts and Hiroshima's as the best possible world. If God saw this world with such horrors and tragedies like the Holocaust and like Hiroshima as the best possible world, given his middle knowledge of what free creatures would do in any possible situation. Given that this is the world God chose to bring about, and that this is the only actual world, wasn't someone like Hitler still bound to turn out evil? God knew that Hitler would respond to, say, the, the harsh punishments of the treaty of Versailles on the German people at the end of World War I. He, he saw with his middle knowledge that Hitler would respond to that with the revengeful fire to bring Germany back to a global power. Presumably, God knew that Hitler would lead a racist, genocidal crusade against the Jewish people. And knowing full well that Hitler would respond that way, and knowing that he still created this one actual world where Hitler is able to commit such terrible atrocities. The question that people have that would have, whether they are classical theists or, again, open theists even bring about this question. Was there a possible world where Hitler is presented with a totally different set of circumstances and opportunities that, that lead him to, say, become a humanitarian? Or, 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 or what about a possible world where Hitler's parents never choose to even conceive a child? It is possible that God had middle knowledge of such a world, but according to Molinism, he also saw that counterfactual world as being worse in totality than this one. 
And the Molinist would say, we have to trust God's wisdom and providence that, that, that somehow in his surveying of all possible worlds, that God in his wisdom saw that this was still the best possible world. And in some ways, that might, that might give some of us consolation as we experience evil and suffering. It might give some consolation, and that, that, that was a strength that maybe felt compelling, right? Maybe this is, like in the case of George Bailey, this actual world, even with its hardships, is better than a world elsewhere. It's better than another possible world. That might give us a sense of, a sense of comfort in the same way that classical theists, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, but in the same way that classical theists, in the same way for, like for a Calvinist that places a heavy emphasis on all things being predestined by God's divine decree, they might find some comfort in knowing that God in his divine decree has oriented the world in a way that, yes, it is filled with these experiences of evil and suffering, but, but in the end it will turn out for good and that God's, God's wisdom is better than our wisdom, right? His ways are higher than our ways. But it still leaves us with some troubling questions. Can you pick up on what some of those troubling questions might be? One of the biggest one becomes, and we'll take the case of Hitler. It always comes back to Hitler, right? <laughs> it always comes back to Hitler and these moral dilemmas. The question that becomes, well, all right, to what degree is Hitler responsible for his actions? The cards that God has been dealt and Hitler now has been dealt seem like a problem not only for Hitler, but for the six million Jews who died under his ruthless regime. Could Hitler have done otherwise than the way he acted in this one actual world? No, he couldn't, right? This is the problem that still isn't solved. It doesn't appear to be solved by Molinism. Yes, in a sense, we could say that Hitler in a counterfactual world, and one of the other possible worlds that God had middle knowledge of, Hitler responds differently to the Treaty of Versailles or some other situation or some maybe some potential abuse in his childhood never happens, right? And, 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 and Hitler turns out in a very different way, right? He responds freely with his free will in a different way. In Molinism, there's an effort to try to hold on to the fact that, yes, this is Hitler's free will, but God knew specifically how Hitler would use his free will in these particular situations to bring about particular things, and we can't understand the butterfly effect of all of it. We can't understand the butterfly effect. We can't understand how the butterfly flapping his wings in Southeast Asia, how that that leads to a hurricane that hits the Gulf Coast. We can't see it, but God can see it. He sees all the calculations, and he sees that, that this particular world is the best world. And we go, well, maybe there's some consolation in that, but what consolation is there for Hitler? <laughs> Hitler, in this sense, is still, he's faded. He is faded to act like this because this is the world God has chosen to actualize. God knows Hitler is going to respond in these particular situations, in these particular ways. Yes, you could say, the Molinist tries to say that it's his will 
It's still Hitler's will that's responding that way. But Hitler can't do otherwise. Wouldn't any one of us, if put in the wrong situation at the wrong time, turn out to possibly become horrible moral monsters? This is the premise of Alan Moore's 1988 comic book classic, The Killing Joke, which, which tells one possible story of how Batman's arch-nemesis Joker becomes a deranged, sadistic, murdering clown. In that story, uh, an unnamed man, so they never actually give a name to this guy, goes through a series of tragedies, many of which actually seem well outside of his control. Through these series of tragedies like the tragic death of his pregnant wife and, and, and dangerous gangsters strong-arming him and forcing his participation in a crime at the old chemical plant he used to be an engineer at, the man eventually comes face-to-face -face with Batman, right, in this, in this chemical plant. So you got to know the story just a little bit, you know, this, this unnamed man, um, you know, steps down from his, his career that he feels is a, a dead-end job at the old chemical plant where he's an engineer to become a comedian. He wants to be a comedian, right? And things aren't going so well. People aren't laughing at his jokes. Comedian life isn't going well. He's got a pregnant wife at home, and, and she's upset with him, right? And, and so he's, he's going through this, and one day as he's, I believe he's at a bar, um, <laughs> you know, having a drink, these gangsters um, who have targeted him. They know he worked at this chemical plant and they've got, they need to break into this chemical plant. And so they strong arm him and they threaten him and they tell him, you've got to do this for us. And so they force this man to do it. They break into the chemical plant. Um, they dress him up to make him look like he's the leader of the gang when he really isn't. I mean, he's being forced against his will to do so. He finds out that very day, right, that his wife has died. He's, he's losing it. It's all unraveling in him. And he comes face to face with Batman in this chemical plant. And out of total fear, the, the man jumps into the hazardous chemicals. He emerges out of those hazardous chemicals with bleached skin, green hair, and clown-like red lips. The, the sheer sight of his disfigurement becomes the last straw that causes him to snap. Subsequently, he, he goes on a horrific rampage throughout the rest of the comic, trying to demonstrate that everybody is just one bad day away from becoming like him, from becoming like the Joker. And in the penultimate confrontation with Batman, he says to the Cape Crusader, quote, All it takes is one bad day to reduce the sanest man alive to lunacy. That's how far the world is from where I am. Just one bad day. You had a bad day once, am I right? I know I am. I can tell. You had a bad day and everything changed, end quote. Could there have been a world in which Hitler was a humanitarian and the, and the jokers of the world never had their one bad day? 
according to Melina, in, in theory, you could say maybe yes. But God would have also seen how the butterfly effect of a world with a humanitarian Hitler somehow leads to something far worse. So he actualized a world in which he knew there would be a holocaust. He still doesn't like it. He still says the Holocaust is bad. Hitler is bad. <laughs> this is evil, but this is the best possible world. Similar to Calvinism, one could find some hope in the midst of suffering or in the face of evil by believing that this, this experience that you're going through is, is a part of God's will, which he has decreed, or in the case of Molinism, permitted in order to lead creation to its glorious intended end. But what do you think if your son turns out to be Hitler? Well, well, maybe in some other counterfactual world, he would have used his will differently to become a humanitarian or a pediatrician, but, but God saw it necessary in his final calculation that to bring about his will, Hitler must face the temptations that will lead him to becoming an evil despot that brings genocide upon six million Jews and another six million other peoples, what if that is your son? Should we look then upon the Hitlers and the Jokers of the world with sympathy? That might be perhaps a bit of the genius of the most recent Joker film. It, it does borrow some of these ideas from the classic comic, 1988 comic, The Killing Joke, written by Alan Moore that we've talked about, and maybe highlighting how this guy that was at the, the low rungs of the social ladder, probably very low in IQ, struggling from mental health crises, how this guy's experiences of having a bad day could lead him down this very, very dark path. Shouldn't we have sympathy for the Arthur Flex? That's what they name him in the, the most recent Joker film. They, you know, unlike the comic that didn't have a name, they give this guy a name, Arthur Flex. Shouldn't, shouldn't we look at the Arthur Flex of the world with sympathy, knowing, yes, the, the, that that was, in a sense, their free will, but yet... God knew that they had to respond to those particular situations a particular way. And this is the one actual world. So in a sense, aren't they still fated to, to act that way in the world? And if that's the case, how can moral agents ever be considered responsible for their actions? And what would we make of this Molinist theodicy if it's if it's also paired with the idea that Hitler will endure eternal conscious torment for his crimes that he inevitably had to commit in this one actual world, we pair those things together. And, and maybe, maybe the Molinist, the, the, the new perspective of Molinism, I don't know, maybe it doesn't solve the problems that classical theism was wrestling with. Maybe it doesn't solve the, the problems that people saw in the, the predestinarianism of Calvin. While in many ways, Molinism was just a slight variation from the classical position, classical theism of the Augustinian and Thomistic traditions. As we're going to see, 
There are reasons why in the centuries to come, more novel theologies emerge that attempt to deal with the problem of evil and human suffering and even more creative ways that veer much further away from the classical notions of God and his working in the world. Sadly, we can't underestimate the damage Christians have done, as they have all too frequently propagated evil and suffering in the world. One clear and conclusive reason for the beginning of the long process of secularization and the resulting meaning crisis in the Western world has been the problem of evil and suffering created by those claiming to be Christian. Again, it's not just ideas and words about ideas that reveal what we believe and end up changing the world. It's the existential enactment of our deepest values played out in our daily lives that reveal the God or gods we actually worship. And by the 17th and 18th century, many of the inhabitants of Europe and North America were growing tired of the God of Christendom. Well past the Crusades and Inquisition, post-Reformation Europe had many horrific incidents of mass suffering induced by alleged Christians. Some to consider and to, to help you understand why um, it should be no surprise that many people throughout Europe and into North America begin to move away from the Christian story altogether. In large part, it is because of the mass suffering induced by Christians and those in Christendom. For example, in the 17th century, witch trials took place throughout Europe. And, and of course, quite famously in Salem, Massachusetts. I, I don't think we have a full grasp on the devastation that those witch trials produced. As Charlene P.E. Burns brings up in her Christian Understandings of Evil, The Historical Trajectory, a book that we've been referring to throughout this podcast, there were as many as 100,000 executions during these witch trials. 100,000 people killed in witch trials, of which 80,000 of them were women. And just in case you might think, well, you know, maybe that was just one particular denomination or, you know, sadly, this was an ecumenical effort. You couldn't get Catholics and Protestants to agree on anything except, hey, we're going to kill witches. The worst of these witch trials happened in both Catholic lands and Calvinist reformed areas. So the, the two worst sites for the witch trials were in Catholic lands in Germany and in Calvinist areas of Scotland. You had the, not only that, but you had the wars of religion in France in the late 16th century, followed by the Thirty Years' War between Catholics and Protestants in Central Europe. You can see how all of these religious conflicts and these incidences of mass suffering perpetuate on the part of Christians in many cases arguing and fighting yes the the 
there are politics involved. There's clearly politics involved. That it's, it's inescapable, but yet you, you take the, the, the fighting between Catholics and Protestants. What are we fighting over? Well, at its core, we are fighting over what is God's revealed will in the world, and how do we deduce that, and then what's the right way and right mode of being based on that will, and we're going to kill you because we disagree with you. We're going to kill you because we think you're a witch, right? This is, you can see how all these religious conflicts created a counter-response of cynicism towards Christianity as an institutionalized religion, a response we still feel to this very day. And what kind of God is running the world. <laughs> what, what, what kind of God is this that, that produces these sorts of behaviors in people? This is, these incidences are still at the core of what drives the new atheist movement. Here Dawkins and Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris talk today, and their problem is a, is a theodicy problem. It's a problem not only with the intellectual problem of evil and Christian theology, but it's the actual existential behavior of Christians who are claiming to follow a particular God. And they've seen that in history in the Crusades and the Inquisitions. They go, yeah, I, w- I want no part of it. And you can see why. Running oftentimes parallel, the odd thing about this is Running in parallel with these religious conflicts was also a scientific revolution. A scientific revolution was brewing at the same time as these religious tribal conflicts. And it was birthed out of, the scientific revolution was birthed out of the theological affirmation of general revelation and reason. And we can thank Thomas Aquinas for this. Thomas Aquinas revived the Aristilian tradition and the Aristilian emphasis on, on logic. And as, as Aquinas would help reframe this in, in Christian theological terms, the emphasis on general revelation and the ability of reason that God has given all humanity, that you need not be a Christian, that all people have access to knowledge of God, at least in part through their faculties of reason, right? Isn't this Romans 1? Isn't this Romans 1 that is, you know, people are without excuse because his invisible qualities are clearly displayed in creation? As John Verveke so astutely observes in his excellent Awakening from the Meaning Crisis lecture series, Many of these scientific discoveries ended up shattering our prior understandings of the world, and it, it disoriented people's meaning-making systems. We, we can't underestimate this. We can't underestimate the effect of these scientific discoveries on people's view of the world and themselves. So this is a tumultuous time. It's a, there's, the scientific revolution brings about so many positive things, right? So many positive things. But we have in this time period you know, from really from the 16th, end of the 16th century into the 18th century, these religious wars brewing, these conflicts over religious issues brewing. We have emerging out of the Christian theological affirmation of general revelation, this, this new emphasis on the abilities and faculties of reason to help us understand the world. And it's, it's like working, you know, math works. 
and the processes of scientific discovery work, but they're also pointing to a reality that is perhaps shattering and disorienting people's meaning-making systems. Here's one example, and this is a great one that Verveke brings up in his lecture series. Think about how disorienting it is to discover that the earth is not actually the center of the universe. When it would appear, right, as you go look outside and, and based on your unassisted observation and experience, it would look like the sun is moving around the earth, right? That the stars are moving around the earth. This this seems, based on your own unassisted observations, this seems to be the way the world is. And to have someone like Galileo come along, and to have someone like Copernicus come, come along and clearly demonstrate that that's wrong is very disorienting to your entire meaning-making system. It gets, it gets people to question reality in a way that perhaps they, they hadn't questioned before. This happens with Newton's laws of physics, which pointed to the universe, at least from the Newtonian perspective. Later in history, Einstein um, brings some corrections to, to, to classical physics from Newton. But, you know, according to Newton, the universe seems to run like a machine, automated by a designer to run and, and behave according to law not via direct, immediate contact and control by God. This is a big, big deal. Because this, this distinguishing between, and this was always there in the theological tradition, especially in the Thomistic tradition, between God as a primary cause and ground of being in all things, and then the how we may have secondary causations. And so Newton, who wrote much on theology too, um, and was a Christian, some of these things you might read Newton and go, you know, I have sharp disagreements with his theology. But from the Newtonian perspective that emerges, God has set up laws, has set up laws, these automated processes in the universe that don't necessarily require God to be connected directly to and immediately controlling, right? These, these laws of the universe function in a way that makes God designer, makes God prime mover, right? These are going to be important ideas that lead to very different thoughts about God in, that, in those centuries that follow especially in the, as we get from the 17th and into this 18th century, this revolution in science and math led to the rise of rationalism and something that we would call natural theology. We need to talk a little bit about natural theology, the emergence of natural theology, and then the subsequent emergence of deism to help us understand a bit of... A bit of what has brought us to these polarizing ways of dealing with the problem of evil. So I, I want to take us through that. Originally, I thought, you know, we're going to just jump right into the way process theism and subsequently open theism try to make sense of the problem of evil. But I don't think we can really get there. You know, I was doing a lot of evaluating on this. I don't think we can get there until we understand 
the influence of natural theology and deism as a sort of extreme on classical theism to see why there are people that would eventually bring about substantial and radical challenges to the classical notions of God. It's because they actually were seeing the ways and perhaps the insufficiencies of natural theology, the insufficiencies of the emerging deist perspective, and they are responding to that. So in order to get there, we need to spend a little time trying to understand natural theology and deism. Natural theology is a theological discipline that attempts to appeal only to the use of reason to understand the existence and attributes of God. By only appealing to reason and not to any divine revelation, natural theologians had hoped to bridge some of the divide that they had seen in the world of theology and even in the world that emerged out of these diverse theological perspectives and the Catholic and Protestant traditions that had led to warfare. Natural theologians had hoped to find maybe some unifying thread. And not only that, not only was this a a hope to say, hey, you know what, we can put aside our, our differences on how we interpret divine revelation and where the location the location of authority resides in deciphering and determining divine divine revelation or special revelation. So what we can do instead is let's let's just we can appeal and we can unite humanity. We can unite diverse peoples under this effort to understand God by the effects of his laws in the world. That was one driving factor. Of course, the other driving factor was just the effectiveness of science and math, the effectiveness and the demonstrable effectiveness of science and math in helping us understand the world led many people to go, you know, there's just, this is a more falsifiable process. We can discern true and false in math and science. You know, you pit one person's interpretation of revelation against another person's how how in the world are we supposed to find consensus so the mathematic and scientific revolution also was an important factor that led to this um, developing natural theology natural theology put an increasing emphasis on the role of reason in understanding god and his world natural theology again is what we can deduce about god from his laws Understanding God's laws in the world via science and math and reason seems to work. We can get people from various perspectives and religious traditions together, not even outside of the Christian tradition. You can get people together and you can do a scientific experiment and they can both observe it and go, wow, yeah, you know, this is the conclusion, right? This seems to potentially be an improvement on a way to understand the world. And it helps mitigate some of the violent arguments over differences of interpretation of scripture. If perhaps we maybe just rely more on the light of reason, which has been given to all humanity. So how might a natural theologian deal with the problem of evil? Well, to explore this, let's use one person in particular as a case study. Perhaps one of the best 
examples of a natural theologian from this time period that we could refer to would be Gottfried Leibniz. We've talked about Leibniz before at the very beginning of our podcast series. It was Leibniz who gave us the term theodicy, and actually I've sort of been anachronistically using another expression of Leibniz on um, to describe Molinism or one perspective of Molinism. It was Gottfried Leibniz that famously said, he made the argument that this is the best of all possible worlds. Leibniz was a philosopher uh, from Germany. He was a mathematician, and he is a great example of a natural theologian. Leibniz opens his seminal work written in, in 1710, Theodicy, Essays on the Goodness of God, the Freedom of Man, and the Origin of Evil, by writing, quote, I assume that two truths cannot contradict each other, that the object of faith is the truth God has revealed in an extraordinary way, and that reason is the linking together of truths, but especially when it is compared with faith of those whereto the human mind can attain naturally without being aided by the light of faith. For Leibniz, there are two categories of truth or truths. You have necessary truths and positive truths. For Leibniz, God set about the positive truths. Positive truths are the laws of nature, those that depend on God's laws. Whereas necessary truths are the, the, the truths of logic, metaphysics, geometry, mathematics, etc. You can't deny those truths. Those truths are necessary truths. So for, for Leibniz, God has determined and sets out the positive truths. He sets out the laws of nature and, and the disciplines of philosophy and mathematics and science lead us to understanding the positive truths. Positive truths set. The laws of nature are the things that are set by God. We come to discern those things and categorize them, those necessary truths. And these necessary truths must be in keeping, and they flow out of the laws of nature or the positive truths. For Leibniz, there are two problems related to evil. First, free will seems incompatible with the very nature of God in the classical sense. But, of course, free will is necessary. You must have free will. You must have libertarian free will in order for punishment for sins to be just. See, this was the problem that we explored, right, when we're talking about maybe some of the deficiencies that people saw in, in, in Molinism. And it's a deficiency of any all the predestinarian systems, too. And so this leads Leibniz to argue fiercely against predestination. He says that we can't have, we can't have a predestined world and we can't have a world in which free will is not possible and for God to be just in punishing people for sins. So what does he do to try to set up some sort of metaphysical or ontological framework for the affirmation of free will? Well, it, it appears as if Leibniz goes with a sort of Molinist route again. Here, um, Leibniz again appeals to the the ability of God to calculate the innumerable possible worlds that could have existed. He is, in, he is brilliant. You know, of course, Leibniz is a, he's a mathematician, so he can, he can conceive of a God who 
um, is brilliant enough to to peruse through all possible scenarios, the nearly infinite amount of scenarios that might exist for the nearly infinite amount of situations that could happen in actuality, and and brings about this actual world again, the best possible world. So in that way, Leibniz is he's not perhaps not that different than Molina in trying to figure out, well, how does, how does free will exist? And of course, there's problems with that already. But that's not the point. The point of discussing Leibniz, Leibniz right now is to help us understand a little bit of where natural theology took us. For Leibniz, you could say that this world, this best of all possible worlds, comes about as a result of God's perfection of calculation, right? God is able to make a proper calculation of whether this world would be better than the one in which even the slightest slightest evil that we experience, if that was taken out, uh, how it would affect the rest of the equation. Everything in the world is interconnected. Again, if you can understand some of the butterfly effect stuff and Molinism, then you're understanding Leibniz, who's who sees the interconnected nature of everything in the world and, and believes that if you, you take one thing out, you don't know how much the rest of it could drastically change. So in a sense, evil, evil, is, evil is part of something that God has decided in his perfect calculations <laughs> to, to, to allow to exist in this actual world because this one is the one, quote, found the best by the creator who chose it. The sum total, then, of all evil that exists in creation now and has existed in the past is pales in comparison to the sum total of the good that is currently in creation and what God is intending to do with creation. For Leibniz, he even considered the possibility of life existing on other planets, and for him, that would only just further tilt the calculation in favor of this is worth it, like this is the best of all possible worlds, that if we found that there is life existing on other worlds, well, then it would make evil, the evil paling, the the total of evil in the universe pale in comparison to all the good in the universe. For Leibniz, he he tries to, and this is something that's going to change over time. Leibniz as a natural theologian is still, you know, he's raised a Lutheran, and he's, he's trying to stay within, you know, broad Orthodox Christian theology. So he affirms things like, in the classical sense, that evil is simply a privation. It has no efficient cause. It's a privation of the good. And that evil arises from the, there's a necessary imperfection. Again, we, could, we went back to Aquinas and others, who recognized that logically God could not make a perfect creation because that perfect, if we were to imagine the pinnacle of what is true, good, and beautiful, and that there'd be no deficiency in that, we would be imagining God. And so for God to make a creation separate from himself, there would need to be inherent in that the possibility, right? There are possibilities, possibilities for imperfections, for movements away from the good. Without that, there would be nothing in existence apart from God. Leibniz breaks up the evil and the deficiencies that we experience presently in creation into three categories, three categories of evil. 
metaphysical evil, physical evil, and moral evils. Metaphysical evil is the the just the built-in imperfection in all created things, right? So every possible created world, any possible world God could have created in order for a creation to be separate from God to exist is going to experience some level of imperfection. So in a metaphysical sense, that sort of evil, that deficiency is inevitable. Once we accept metaphysical deficiencies as a necessary part of having a distinct creator and creation, it would logically follow that natural evils and moral evils exist in all possible worlds as well. But that this particular world, God and his goodness, has chosen to bring about a world in which there is maximal goodness these these evils, these evils like natural evils, again, what he might have called, he called physical evils, but what we've referred to throughout this podcast is natural evils and moral evils are permitted, right? They're permitted. They're a part of God's permissive will, but God is not culpable. He doesn't do these wills, right? For Leibniz, there's a difference between permitting and doing something, and God actively choosing it. So, because God is not actively choosing these particular evils to happen in the world, he has set up the laws in which creation would work. He's chosen to have a world in which there is free will, and because of that, God is not culpable for physical, natural, and moral evil, because even in God's allowing it, God is willing, ultimately, the good. When it comes to what evils God will allow or permit, there is a, for Leibniz, an, an, an overarching principle which sort of governs God's activity in the world. And he calls it the rule of the best, right? So you have any sort of moral evil or natural evil is evaluated by the rule of the best in God. It's this sort of divine calculation. Will this be allowed? Well, only, 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 only if this world remains the best possible of all worlds. It submits, it subordinates itself to the rule of the best. God allows the things that we experience as evil to happen only because he sees that to stop them, the butterfly effect would lead to less good in total in the world. So this is a, a divine calculation on God's part. Now, of course, all of the counters and the objections that we discussed for Molinism would apply to Leibniz's theology and theodicy here as well. But it's important to see how the emphasis on the governance of the universe running according to God's law and his mathematical computation of which he has maximized the, the good of the world and the world operating according to principles it's important for us to see how this leads to, and this isn't Leibniz's intention, I don't think, but this is 
This is a consequence of this natural theology movement, how this slowly and slowly erodes the activity of God in the world, that God is replaced by God's laws or principles. This is, this is really important for us to get because this seems as if, if we were to do some sort of logical evaluation of this, right? If, if God is the, not even just omniscient, but if God possesses infinite intelligence, we could even put it like that, right? If God possesses infinite intelligence, he is perfection of being itself and he brings about a world, yes, a world that maybe has some metaphysical and inherently metaphysical deficiencies. Those deficiencies have come about because in God's calculations, they should be there. This is really, really crucial that you guys get this because it's, it's going to lead to this very, you know, the pendulum of classical theism is going to swing in a very drastic direction towards something called deism. Natural theology is going to lead easily into deism, where God's activity in the world is replaced by God's laws. They're like self-governing automated automatons, right? Processes. God has built, in a sense, the computer of the universe, and it's a closed system. And a perfect God who knows all things and is uh, and is all-powerful, right, is going to build a computer that's running the way it should run. We could rephrase Leibniz this way. We could say that it's the best possible computer. And, and this could have some appeal to people. This can have some appeal to people as they process problems with evil and suffering in the world. And let's let's consider one contemporary example from from this time period, in 1755, there was a horrific, absolutely horrific incident that took place in, in Lisbon, and it actually had uh, effects throughout, throughout Europe. In 1755, there was a devastating earthquake, killed more than 60,000 people in Lisbon, most of whom would have, would have been in church that day, as it was All Saints Day. Think of this. 60,000 people, we don't know how many were actually in church, but we do know that the vast majority of them were in church, worshiping God on All Saints Day. Now, where is God in the midst of that? Voltaire famously had this challenge, this challenge for, for, for Leibniz about, you know, this is really the best of all possible worlds, where people worshiping your God, your Christian God, are killed in church because of an earthquake like this is your best of all possible worlds but one of the strengths that natural theology seemingly had for people experiencing natural evils like that is that they need not see god as directly behind that you know the scientific revolution helped us understand that causality um, where there was frequently this sort of god of the gaps uh, imagination in Western thought, you know, where we didn't have an explanation, it was God doing it, that science removed, was removing some of those gaps. We could actually see principles and laws at work that seem to operate particular ways without necessarily God 
you know, stepping into, if you will, stepping into the story and shaking the earth, right? Causing this earthquake that earthquakes just happen as part of the natural laws. You know, for Leibniz, as horrific, as horrific as that terrible earthquake is, we have to trust that this is still, this is the only world that we have. It has to be the best of all possible worlds for God to be. God is good. He has decided that this is, even in such horrific tragedies, the best of all possible worlds, but he isn't the one actually shaking the earth. You know, he set up these principles and these laws that govern the universe and he saw fit that there would be, yes, there was going to be deficiencies like this, but this is the best it can be right now. So people could take some consolation in a sense of just going, well, no, earthquakes just happen. Earthquakes happen as part of the sort of the, the general policy that God has for creation. He made creation to function a particular way. Where the dangers of nat- natural theology lead us is to lead us to a point in which God is not actually active and present in the world at all because it seems illogical for a perfect and good God to need to step into his creation. Why would he need to do that? This is the challenge of deism. As natural theology gives way to deism, God is moved further and further away from being the living God participating in creation and moves more and more into the category of the clockmaker God, the God who built the computer, the God who automated, set up the automations for the systems and then pressed the start button to let it run. Is this way of thinking of God an improvement? Does it actually help us deal with evil and suffering in a way that's far more intellectually satisfying and emotionally satisfying? We'll discuss that and much more in our next episode. Thanks for listening to today's episode. This episode and the entirety of this podcast is brought to you by the Deep Talks Patreon community. It's people like Luke H. and Paul R. who are making this podcast possible. Thank you to you guys for your generous support. And to all of you in the Deep Talks Patreon community, I want to thank those Nathan, Hannah, Ann, Michael, Josh, Sam, Tim, JP, Jason, Joel, Dave, Glenn, Micah, Dan, Kevin, Grant, Isaac, Michael, Caleb, Stephen, Steve, Carrie, thank you, all of you guys, for your support. Can't do it without you. Yes, that last name on the list is my wife. (laughs) Thank you guys all for your support. I'm really excited. Next week, I'm going to be sitting down with, um, sitting down, I guess, across the internet, across the vast expanse of the internet and the Atlantic Ocean to have a conversation with Justin Brierley from the unbelievable show, an excellent program happening in the UK. Maybe some of you are already familiar with it. I'm looking forward to talking to Justin about his experiences, his personal experiences, and some of the things he's learned as he's had incredible conversations with some of the most brilliant people, in not, not just the Christian tradition, but brilliant atheists and mathematicians and scholars. It's, it's gonna be a real joy to t- talk to Justin. So. You know, your support makes episodes like that possible and episodes like this, and I want to thank you for it. 
If you're looking to get involved and support this podcast, you could become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community. You know, if my goal is to hit 300 supporters, and uh, if we had 300 supporters, um, you know, even just giving a couple bucks a month, it would make a radical difference in some of the things I'd be able to do. Really have goals of, again of branching out and doing more video stuff in this next year, and I really want to be able to sustain producing this weekly. Not quite there yet, but I want to get there. So thank you guys for your support and those considering doing that. If you'd like to support other ways, it'd be really helpful if you left a review on Apple Podcasts. That's the primary place people go to 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 find their podcasts. And so you leaving a review helps other people discover this and to figure out if this is something worth their, their time and perhaps if this is something that is an intersection with their interests in life. So I I would invite you to do that. You don't need to flatter me or anything like that. But if you leave a review, that would be great and appreciate it. So thank you again, guys, for listening. I'd love to hear from you after you've got done with this episode and are going through this series. What do you see as the strengths and weaknesses of each idea and new way of thinking and dealing and trying to address the problem of evil? What do you see as the strengths and weaknesses of natural theology? What do you see as the strengths and weaknesses of, of Molinism? I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me on Twitter, at Paul Landleitner. I always leave a link to that, as well as all the other things I've talked about. I'll leave a link to that in the description of this podcast. Till next time, we'll talk to you again soon.